Next, on Book TV's Afterwards, journalist Andrea Bernstein chronicles the Trump and Kushner family's rise to prominence. She's interviewed by Washington Post business reporter Jonathan O'Connell. Afterwards is a weekly interview program with relevant guest hosts interviewing top nonfiction authors about their latest work. All Afterwards programs are also available as podcasts. Very happy to be joined here by Andrea Bernstein, uh, the co-host of the Trump Inc. podcast, a very popular and important podcast, and the author of the new book, American Oligarchs. Um, I recommend people read this book. I find it incredibly detailed uh, and informative. Um, Andrea, one of the first things that struck me about reading your book was uh, I feel like you're the perfect person for this because you've immersed yourself in New York and New Jersey politics and real estate and business for uh, you know, a career. And now here we have not only the Trumps and the Kushners, but so many other New Jersey and New Yorkers uh, who are in, you know, running for president. There's Cory Booker. There's uh, Rudy Giuliani, of course, in the middle of everything. Why right now do you think there are so many New Yorkers uh, and New Jersey folk who are in, you know, at the upper levels of power in um, American politics? You know, it's such an interesting question because for so many years, when I was covering New York politics, there was a sense of sort of New York was out in the cold. Not, of course, people like Hillary Clinton, uh, who obviously ran for president from New York, but there was a sense that somehow, because New York wasn't Iowa or New Hampshire, it really wasn't an important state except for fundraising purposes. And one of the things that happened when Trump was elected president was that he was so of this world that I had been covering, a, a world of New York real estate and wheeling and dealing and political donations, that I felt almost a sense of obligation. I have to cover Trump and his business in the White House because I understand this world. I've been spending 25 years. I understand the patterns. And lo and behold, the stories are very similar to ones I might have been covering 20 years in New York. It's just that the stage is so much larger and the consequences are so much more serious now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, I, I found it incredibly detailed. I encourage people who are Trump supporters or people who are not Trump supporters uh, to, to read it and read it carefully. It's, it's very well done. Um, you know, one of the first parts, the early parts of the book is um, this very detailed explanation of Jared Kushner's um, ancestors um, who are um, some of whom are slaughtered by the Nazis in Poland. There, you know, he's a, a, he's Jewish, and he has Jewish ancestors um, in Europe. And some of them escape, and it's very harrowing and a really kind of a horrifying experience that his ancestors go through. And then some of them escape Nazi uh, Germany and Poland and make it to America. Um, and you contrast that in a number of places with um, sort of the administration's immigration policy today. Is there something that you would want? How do you think Jared Kushner squares those two things? Well, I think Jared Kushner's origin story is a fascinating story. And, and he does talk about being the grandson of Holocaust survivors. And he talks about it as a story of American success, that his grandparents fled the Nazis, survived, made it to America, came from nothing, and built a business. And all of that is true. but. What is not so apparent is the choices that his grandparents made to get to this country. Now, I wanted to be clear, it's an incredible story of bravery and tenacity and escape. His grandmother was part of a small group of survivors of several Nazi massacres who dug a tunnel out from the Nazi ghetto, out from under the barbed wire and the searchlights, and escaped and made it to the forest where they lived through a brutal Polish winter. And after the war, they went back to their town. Now, they were Jews. Their town was then part of the Soviet Union. It was Poland before the war, and then it was Soviet Union, and then it was occupied by the Nazis, and then it was occupied the Soviet Union again, and now it's part of Belarus. But they wanted to get out. And they boarded a train to Budapest saying they were Greek because they thought it would be easier to get out. And then once they got to Budapest, they walked and took the train and snuck across borders until they got to a refugee camp in Italy. And then they got stuck there for three and a half years because even after the Holocaust, 
U.S. immigration laws were very anti-Semitic, and there was a quota for Jews. So at one point, and this is by the account of the Kushner family themselves, they describe it in a book that they wrote about their family history, Jared Kushner's grandfather took on his wife's maiden name. So he had been born Yussel Berkowitz, and he renamed himself Joseph Kushner and presented himself as the son of his father-in-law because he understood it would be easier for immigration purposes. And they did get the visas, and they made it to New York. And they did what they had to do so that they could build a family and build a business and achieve great success and ultimately, down the line, see their grandson in one of the most powerful positions on Earth. And the end of the story is, I think, as everyone knows, that their grandson, Jared Kushner, works in a White House that is very, very restrictive when it comes to immigration policies and, in fact, is drastically reducing not only immigration but the number of refugees that are admitted into the U.S., Truly an amazing story of perseverance and, and courage by his ancestors, um, and amazing storytelling on your part. You know, now that he is, um, you know, I think people who have met um, Jared and or, or have read about him know that faith is a really important part of who he is. Uh, obviously, Ivanka converted to be an Orthodox Jew to become his wife, to marry him. Um, and that, that is, occurs throughout the book, where you can see how close he is with his family, how much they um, care about and think about their ancestry, how do you think that his faith informs his work in the White House today? Well, I think it's a really complicated thread. And the reason I think it's complicated is because there's a couple of narrative lines that run through the book, and one has to do with rules and rule-breaking. And obviously, the Kushner family broke rules to get here. Uh, they broke rules to achieve success in their business, and they are... Jared Kushner is continuing to break norms in his White House position. Obviously, he is also a very religious person, and I think it's exploring that tension that makes the book interesting reading, because people... I, I tried hard not to present any of these people in a monodimensional way, but to mm -hmm. present all the aspects of their characters, including the religious faith, and the response to it. Sure. Uh, one sort of question on this that uh, continues to sort of eat at me a little bit is that, you know, obviously he is now part of an administration that has a very strict immigration policy, which many, many Americans support and others obviously oppose. And I think you mentioned in the book that there is like a, a low of only 18,000 refugees being allowed in America recently. Um, and at the same time, he's so proud of his, him, his ancestors who are immigrants and refugees. Do you think that Jared Kushner fully supports, um, you know, it, it sort of, uh, he fully believes in the administration's immigration policy, immigration policy, or do you think that he sort of puts up with it so he can, you know, work on other things or make, you know, sort of advance other uh, issues that are more important to him? Every time Jared Kushner has asked about this, he unequivocally supports his father-in-law. Now, Jared Kushner comes from a family where loyalty and family ties are prized above everything, and he married into a, such a family. But I have never heard him criticize his father-in-law in the least. And whenever he's asked about his father-in-law's policies, he supports them 100%. One of the things that was interesting to me coming from New York is there were... So the Kushner family was a big family of Democratic donors at one point. And a lot of Democrats in New York assumed or felt or thought that Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump were, were one of them, is how they saw it. That they believed in their causes and they believed in their candidates. And there were quite a few of them who told me that when Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump went to the White House, they felt that they would have a back channel, that they would be able to uh, prevail upon them to shape the president's policies. And there's a lot of levels of betrayal in my book, and there's family betrayal, and there's brother against brother and brother against sister, but there is also the story of the betrayal of New York, and the people that thought they were part of Jared Kushner's world and Ivanka Trump's world, but were surprised when they got to the White House and their entreaties were rebuffed, and this is something I heard over and over again. Right. I actually thought during the same time period it's very interesting to hear about um, Jared and Ivanka's relationship with Rupert Murdoch um, and his family and how they go on right. the boat and vacation together. 
What do you make of that relationship? What do you think that Jared and Ivanka have learned from, from Mr. Murdoch? So it's an interesting thing because Jared Kushner, uh, when he was about 25, 26 years old, bought a weekly newspaper in New York called the New York Observer. And uh, people who worked there at the time sort of understood his politics to kind of be sort of left centrist. And many of them told me that over the years they would su be surprised that Jared Kushner would come in on a Monday morning and he would say, well, Ivanka and I were uh, with Rupert or Rupert and Wendy Murdoch when they were married and uh, spoke about their weekend trips. And first it was just sort of a social thing. And then Jared Kushner began espousing more conservative ideas. And his newspaper on its editorial page the New York Observer did too. And people saw it more and more as in the model of a Rupert Murdoch publication where it's understood that the publication serves a particular agenda. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, one of the things I think this book does best is it really details every chapter of President Trump's real estate career uh, in, in really incredible detail. And I encourage people who have either you know, got to know the president by watching The Apprentice or from reading about him. But this is really a, a really detailed account of how he made his money. And you can see many steps along the way in which uh, Mr. Trump uh, committed or nearly committed some kind of fraud or left business partners out to dry uh, and in many cases made money uh, anyway. And a, a certain portion of his um, money making is relying on uh, government programs, which might surprise some people given... Um, his, you know, political positions. Would you maybe share a couple of examples of times where the president used government programs to advance his business? Sure. So the studio where I am sitting right now is across the street from the Grand Hyatt Hotel, which used to be known as the Commodore Hotel. And this was the deal that made Donald Trump a real estate mogul. His father, Fred Trump, had been a successful real estate developer, but it was mostly in Brooklyn and Queens and the outer boroughs of New York. Donald was much more interested in Manhattan. Fred Trump thought Manhattan was too risky, but Donald Trump wanted to come in, and he had his eyes on this particular piece of property next to Grand Central Terminal. But he wanted a tax break. He wanted a tax giveaway from the government. And he managed to ply his political connections, which were sort of bequeathed from his father. His father had been a member of a club called the Madison Political Club in Brooklyn for decades. And he, and then later Donald, gave m a lot of money, and they went to the fundraising dinners, and they hired the lawyers for the club, and they were very tight. And out of that club came Mayor A. Beam. So when Donald Trump wanted to buy the, or purchase the Commodore Hotel, he had a meeting with a property owner, and he said, we can get a meeting with the mayor, and he got a meeting with the mayor the next day. And the mayor said anything they want, with his arms around Fred and Donald Trump, anything they want, they get. And what Donald Trump was able to get was the first tax break for commercial real estate for a hotel in the history of New York City. It had never been done before. So there had been maybe breaks for affordable housing, but this was a commercial project. It was the biggest tax break in the history of New York. And when he got it, he sort of fooled both sides. So he told the bank that he had state approval when he did not, and he told the state that he had bank approval when he did not. And in fact, he filed a document with the state without the signature of the bank. But no one apparently noticed that it was unsigned by the bank when they approved the deal. And then he boasted about all of this in the art of the deal. So that was how Donald Trump became a Manhattan real estate developer, was through this project that was beset with political connections and fraud and self-dealing and double-dealing. And that was really the beginning. And then after that, he went on to other projects. He went on to Trump Tower, which was sort of put together in a similar way, and his many, many other Manhattan real estate projects that all had this similar outline of him working his political connections and being unabashed about not telling the truth when it served his business interests, which is a pattern that all of us who cover this now still see today. 
Yeah, I think many people are familiar with um, Trump being viewed as sort of a bad boy of real estate, um, and even his character on The Apprentice. Mm. You know, he's you know he's cutting through red tape and firing people and um, willing to take big risks. Uh, and people who have read his books obviously have learned about the lessons that he learned in Atlantic City and in the casino business, et cetera. Mm. He also obviously runs afoul of the law a number of times, and these are documented examples where he has either been fined or uh, had to pay settlements to people. You know, Trump University is an example of that, even though it isn't real estate. Are there, what of all of his history that you know so well now, is there an example where he kind of nearly got caught when he didn't or got away with something that might be really would have changed, um, changed his career in a, in a meaningful way? Oh, so many times. I mean, one involved the very hotel which I was just discussing. In one aspect of the deal, he came under scrutiny from prosecutors in the Eastern District of New York, and a grand jury was impaneled. And Trump was under investigation for possibly uh, hiring a lawyer buying off a lawyer, essentially, who worked for the other side. So that's what they were looking at. And when he was under investigation, Trump's lawyer at the time, Roy Cohn, said to him, why don't you meet with the FBI agent at your father Fred's house? So Donald Trump met with the FBI agent at his father's office on Avenue Z with his then-wife, Ivana, and their then-toddler son, Don Jr. There were no charges. And this was part of a pattern that I document for years, where the FBI starts to look at something that Donald Trump does, and he charms the agents, he takes them to the in his helicopter, he takes them to the 21 Club, and they come away impressed and dazzled, and do not ultimately investigate him. So this happens in deal after deal after deal, where he escapes scrutiny. I think the most interesting recent example uh, was a story that we wrote that uh, involved his adult children, Ivanka Trump and Don Jr., and the Trump so Soho. I was just going to bring that up. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you mentioned that. I was just going to bring oh, okay. that up. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> Do you want to keep going? No, no, no. I just, that, that is, I mean, that is, a, is an example where Ivanka takes a very prominent role in a project, and they appear, you know, from other reporting I read in from your book, that they came, you know, Ivanka and Don Trump Jr. came very, very close to being in real trouble, you know, criminal trouble, and I'd love to hear more about it. Yes. So the Trump family, Donald Sr., Donald mm -hmm. Jr., and Ivanka, were sued by some condo buyers in the Trump Soho Condo Hotel. And they said that the Trump family had lied and had vastly overstated how many units were sold. So the reason this is important is I think that anybody who buys real estate understands that if you're going to buy real estate in an apartment building or on a street, the real estate is more valuable if people live in all the houses next door versus if those houses or apartments are empty. And the Trumps were sued for saying that they were 60% sold when they were in fact not even 15% sold. And the Manhattan District, District Attorney gets a look at it and starts to investigate. And he investigates, and he investigates, and it moves through the office, and there's an email trail in which Trump's adult children are seen discussing this misre misrepresentation and their clear knowledge of it. So people who had seen the emails told me that there was no doubt that they had knowledge, which is sort of what it takes to build a criminal case. But the Trumps first hired a very uh, powerful, well-connected, and high-powered team of white-collar lawyers to try to make it go away. And they didn't make it go away. The DA's team kept proceeding with the case. So then Trump's personal attorney, Mark Kazowitz, who I'm sure is familiar to a number of viewers, who had been a major donor, one of the largest donors to the Manhattan District Attorney, met with the District Attorney three months later over the objections of the prosecutors in his office. The District Attorney closed the case. Don Jr., Don Sr., Ivanka Trump were never prosecuted for felony fraud in Manhattan. But this was fairly close to when Donald Trump was getting ready to run for president. And people we spoke to, people close to the Trumps, thought this would have been a very, very bad situation to run for president. And I think it's one of the cases where there's been 
the Trump family has come closest to criminal charges. I mean, that was an right. investigation that was in full flower. Yeah, and uh, again, there's a lot of civil lawsuits and disagreements with partners, et cetera, but I, I think that, that example is right. It's very recent, and it was really close to uh, criminal right. charges against the Trump family. I mean, family. I think it explains, it explains a lot of what we're seeing now with the impeachment situation and with the other congressional investigations and with the current investigation by the Manhattan DA into Trump's business right. practices, where the president, as a private businessman, was extremely adept at fending off criminal investigations. So he might charm FBI agents, he might threaten people, he might hire well-connected lawyers. He might, as he did for many years, support the favored charity of the Manhattan District Attorney. There were all kinds of ways that he could get himself into good grace with law enforcement in New York and New Jersey. He befriended a U.S. attorney in New Jersey named Chris Christie when he had a lot of gambling interests going. So he made sure that he understood who his friends were and they understood who he was. And he was able to make it work for him. He was never charged in any criminal case. It is interesting to have that background sort of in the rearview mirror as we go into this impeachment situation where he is being called to account and where there is a public reckoning and where in some ways, even though he's president, uh, he is not able to make things go away as he once did. I think we can see now where this impeachment trial is going, but one of the things, the interesting dynamics is having written about and reported on all these decades of the ways that Donald Trump avoided law enforcement to actually be confronted with it, first with the Mueller report and now with the House impeachment inquiry, I think is a revealing insight into how he must feel when investigators are literally at his doorstep. Right, he probably feels like he's been through something similar to this before, which is an amazing kind of thing to say, but he's escaped so many situations where it seemed like he was really up against it and, and got out of it. You know, I, I, I like the over way... Over and over again. Yeah. I mean, the book is filled with close, close yeah. calls again and again in this book, and, um, you know, there's not going to, you know, the, it doesn't look like, like you said, like impeachment will knock him out of the White House um, either. In fact, if passed as prologue, it will embolden him. Sure, so he'll come out stronger. He escapes yeah. the jaws of the law he becomes bolder the next time. And, and, and we saw that with the Mueller report. Mueller testified, and after his testimony was sort of widely thought to be a dud, the very next day, President Trump called the president of Ukraine and asked him to do us a favor, though. And that is the pattern that you see with Donald Trump all through his career, and it's one of the things I trace in the book. Yeah. One of the, you know, in the sort of last 10 or 15 years of um, President Trump's career, and you, de you detail this as well, you know, he's come out of Atlantic City, that's all behind him, but he is still not being lent to by any banks, and no banks will give him loans to expand his empire. Um, and then he sort of uh, manages through a, a number of different um, relationships to get some very large loans from Deutsche Bank. Um, and in this part of his career also, you know, there are some, there are some snippets where either Donald Trump Jr. or Eric Trump talk about doing business with Russians, and there's some um, Russian purchases of, of Trump real estate. And all this sort of adds up to this point, mainly to sort of this, you know, we're through the Mueller report now, and some liberals especially are still hoping that there's some unknown Russian money or Putin is behind Trump's real estate empire in some way or Russian oligarchs are behind it. What do you, what do you think the odds are that there is still some business connection between Putin, Russia, and the Trumps? I think we just don't know. We just don't have the data. As you know, we don't have the president's tax returns. As you know, Congress tried to get information about Deutsche Bank, and they filed a subpoena, and they said, we're investigating money laundering, and we need to understand what happened in these practices. And Trump sued the bank to prevent the bank from releasing any information, even though the bank was willing to turn over those documents. That case is now going to the Supreme Court and will be heard in March before the Supreme Court. So we will learn perhaps if, if Donald Trump or if Deutsche Bank will ever have to turn over any of that information. So the answer is we just don't have the documents and don't have the data. And, and as you well know, this is one of the fundamental frustrations about covering the business of Trump is here's a president with vast international interests and networks 
and we don't know who his investors are, and we don't know to whom he owes money, and we don't know who his partners are, because the U.S. system, the system of disclosure, is not really set up to demand that information. So there's a sort of first level of disclosure, but it doesn't really tell you who people are. Sure. So we're, I feel like it's unsure. But one of the things that I really spent a lot of time thinking about in my book is, you know, so I covered corruption and money in politics for decades in New York. And one of the things that I did not realize was the flow of international, former Soviet Union, oligarchic money into New York real estate. So much money began coming in, really in the sort of early part of this century. And it began flowing into real estate around the city and really, really propping it up. And this is coming at the period where the Trumps cannot get any U.S. banks to support them, which is astounding when you think about it, that the President of the United States really has trouble doing business with American banks because they were so burnt by him. So when he got his loans with Deutsche Bank, he was in a situation where he that's where he was looking to. He was looking to foreign licensing deals. He was looking to Deutsche Bank. He was looking to South Korea, to the former Soviet Union, to anybody who could put money into his properties that wasn't going through the scrutiny of the U.S. banking system. And this happens at the same time that capital is flowing into New York more generally. And it does appear that the Trump family was able to harness that. And, you know, through a lot of really good investigating re reporting, some of your own and, and some other journalists, we have a clearer picture of that. But I still feel like we're only seeing really a tiny sort of crack of light in the door uh, and not really the full light of day of what we would need to see to understand what these relationships are. Sure, that makes sense to me. Um, Ivanka Trump, of course, uh, along with Jared, is now a White House advisor, a presidential advisor. Um, you go through her career in great detail also. What do you think her role was at the president's company when they were in the private sector? So I, I think there's a couple of roles that Ivanka had. I mean, I think on just a sort of general level, she was really in charge of the hospitality business, the hotels, which, by the way, the hotel business prior to Trump's presidency generally sort of got higher rankings uh, than some of the other pieces of business that mm. Trump did. And a lot of New Yorkers have said to me that when she was starting out, so she, she didn't go to the Trump Organization right from college, but almost. And they've said to me that when she was starting out, that Trump would put her on the phone. And they wouldn't yet really understand why this was happening, but this happened to journalists, bankers, public officials. They were talking to Donald Trump, and then he said, here's Ivanka. And it was something that his father had done for him, which is just really put him forward right into the limelight at a very early age. So she becomes somebody who sort of reflects back positively on him because she's smart and she understands business and she doesn't seem to have the sort of outer borough uh, kind of whiff that Donald Trump has. So in a way, she becomes the person to make everything acceptable in the family business. Along the way, as I document in my book, and there were a number of lawsuits about this, she seems to herself have dipped into the Trump family practices, in particular practices of misrepresentation, pretty wholeheartedly. I would uh, I would agree with that. I think that Soho example is a good one, and the Dominican Republic work that they've done also that you you detail very um, well, Panama. Oh yeah, sorry, and, Panama. Uh, right. There yeah. was a there was a, a lawsuit in uh, Baja California mm -hmm. where uh, she had basically sent a letter around that uh, turned up in the court papers to buyers. This was a property that um, a development that had been started right before the Great Recession. But one of the things that the buyers were particularly were upset about is that Ivanka Trump kept saying to buyers, well, this property is not subject to market forces. And people lost their entire investments. Nothing was ever built. And finally, it was brought to a lawsuit. The Trumps settled the lawsuit. 
But in the course of settling the lawsuit, Ivanka Trump defended the family's actions by saying, look, I'm sorry, we were victims here too, but the Trump organization as a business has never been stronger. And she lists a number of places where the Trumps had businesses that were the opposite of strong. So even in apologizing for a situation of telling lies to investors, she says more untruths in the course of that. And I think one of the things I really, I mean, we know from the Washington Post that as of now, Donald Trump has told 15,000 lies or misrepresentations while president and is now up to 30 a day. And one of the things I trace in my book is that how this is a family business practice, how it went from Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, to Donald Trump, and then to his adult children who participated in the family, building, uh, family business, both in, both out of the White House and now in the White House. What do you think Donald Trump will do when he leaves the White House, whether it's a year from now or five years from now? You know, he spent a lifetime in real estate and, you know, four to eight years in politics, basically, I guess, plus the campaign. What do you think he'll do when he leaves? Well, he's moved to Florida. <laughs> right, so he's changed his residence to he Florida recently, no right. longer, He no longer has residency here in New York. Uh, you know, I, I think it's very hard to predict the future. I mean, uh, certainly there are a lot, you know, one of the things that was really interesting to me in the course of reporting my book is so many people in the New York real estate world, big, important people, the first thing that they wanted me to understand was they wanted me to know, and this is their words, Donald Trump is not one of us. So they felt he wasn't sort of part of the New York civic real estate society, but they also felt that his practices were so far off the scale. Now, I want to be clear. New York real estate is a shady business. <laughs> sure. But <laughs> Donald Trump is in a category by himself. And that is what people wanted me to understand in the real estate industry in New York, that he is an outlier in his business practices, as was his father, an outlier in his business practices. The New York Times said they committed outright fraud. This is not something you hear every day about a real estate family in New York. Right. What about, uh, what about Ivanka and Jared? They have obviously been living in Washington now for uh, three or four years and you know, have been working in the White House in politics, but they both have... Hmm. family companies back in New York and New Jersey, uh, well, I guess both in New York now. What do you think their aspirations are in, in the future? You know, all we know is what they say. I mean, Ivanka Trump has said that her focus is on Washington right now. Obviously, Jared Kushner is extremely involved with a broad national and international portfolio, and he is the White House person who is... Uh, sort of overseeing the campaign. Right. I mean, I think it's really important to just sort of pause for a moment on Jared Kushner. When you think about the people that he has outlasted, Jim Kelly, Reince Priebus, Steve Bannon, Jim Mattis, just going on and on and on, Jeff Sessions, so many officials have come and gone, and Jared Kushner, not even 40 years old, is one of the most powerful people on earth. So it's hard to know what they would want to do next, only that they've said that their focus is on Washington and Washington business. Now, Ivanka Trump speaks a lot about the economy. She speaks a lot about women and families. And she speaks in a way that someone wanting to have a future co political career would speak. Now, having said that, I don't know what that means. Um, I tried very hard to get interviews with Ivanka Trump. Uh, and with Jared Kushner for the book, and they didn't interview me, so I couldn't ask them that question myself. Uh, although if I ever had the opportunity, I would be interested to know how they see their futures. I was actually wondering if you knew either of either of them from before they got into politics. From before they got into politics, um, sort of glancingly. So they were parts of worlds that I covered, and they... Uh, I mean, I actually had worked at the New York Observer, although right, before right. Jared Kushner worked at the New York Observer, there was a sort of gap uh, in between when I left and when he came. So there were, there, are, there were and are many, many people that we know in common. And in the course of covering, I mean, I covered New York government and politics, and they were sort of on the edges of that. So I would come across them then. But really when I began to pay much closer attention to 
Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump was during the 2016 campaign, and it was right around this time of year. And I was in Council Bluffs, Iowa, I think it was the day before the first contest of 2016, and Donald Trump was speaking at an event in Council Bluffs with Jerry Falwell Jr., and he introduces his daughter Ivanka, which is not a surprise, and he, interviews, he introduces his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. And I was really surprised to see Jared Kushner on the national stage with his father-in-law because he sort of had been a kind of a more or less behind-the-scenes person and also was a newspaper publisher. Sure. So he wasn't necessarily someone to get on stage with a presidential candidate. And that is the point at which I really began to be interested in the role that Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump were playing in Donald Trump's campaign and ultimately in his White House. Yeah. Again, uh, Mr. Trump may be in office for another year, another five years. When he does leave office, what is the likelihood you think that he could be charged with crimes related to his business and his um, conduct in the private sector? You know, it's I've been covering the court cases that have been addressing this issue. So one of them is Trump v. Vance, mm. in which Trump has sued the Manhattan District Attorney and he's claimed he cannot even be investigated so long as he is president for any business practices that might have run afoul of the law. And the District Attorney has said, well, one of the big problems with that is there's a statute of limitations. Some of these crimes were committed 2011 or, or perhaps committed 2011, 2010, and as the clock can run out on them. So it's entirely possible for that for some of these things, the clock runs out. If President Trump is reelected, almost certainly the clock will run out on many of these things. However, that case is going to the Supreme Court, and it's possible that the Supreme Court will decide that, in fact, a president cannot be investigated, which is a sort of startling conclusion, and I think uh, in some ways even more significant than the impeachment inquiry, which is a political trial, because this means that no law enforcement agent or agency anywhere in the country could even investigate a sitting president so long as that person is in office. And that would fundamentally change our understanding of the roles of the role of checks and balances in our government system. That's one of the reasons why I called my book American Oligarchs, mm -hmm. because the conclusion, you know, I'm a very fact-based reporter, and I want to understand stuff based not on conjecture, but based on documents and interviews and what there is. And an inescapable conclusion for me is that our government is becoming more and more influenced by the very wealthy, including the Trumps and their associates, and that they are being able to control more of the systems and are called less to account. And these court cases are sort of a, a final or a, a very significant a stepping stone on that. If we, if the Supreme Court rules that the president cannot be investigated for anything, we do have a situation where a president is given permission to act in an oligarchic way. Uh, one judge even said a president cannot be king. president is not king. So it's on the mind of the judiciary, but it's unsettled right now. And we will find out when this year's Supreme Court term ends in June what is going to become of those cases, and it will really affect the future of our democracy and whether it remains something recognizable and something like what we see now, or whether we have a situation where there is no accountability. I mean, one of the things that's very interesting to me that came up in the impeachment hearing is a sort of a subplot, is that um, the U.S. diplomats were talking about how one of the goals of U.S. foreign policy, bipartisan goals, was to set up a system of government in Ukraine where government officials could be held to account. Because they said when, you can't, when people cannot be held to account, it leads to corruption. And that was bipartisan policy. So while our bipartisan group of foreign policy professionals is arguing Ukraine needs to have more accountability in its government, our president is arguing that he has to have less. Amazing, and obviously those, um, you know, if there, we have rulings on presidential power and whether a president can be investigated or charged with crimes, that would apply to presidents in the future of either party who would be, you know, then right. granted greater power. Exactly. Well, and one of the things I ask myself is because, you know, we know obviously President Trump has at this point appointed two Supreme Court justices, mm -hmm. and we understand, for example, that Brett Kavanaugh from his record is a 
great believer in presidential power, as is Neil Gorsuch. And we know the, from the fact that they even took these cases, I mean, they took these cases about consequences for the president, despite the fact that the, that the circuit courts, the D.C. Circuit and the Second Circuit Court of Appeals were unambiguous in their findings, as were the federal judges. They were like, no way should the president be able to act with impunity. But the Supreme Court took the cases anyway, even though there was no disagreement and even though these decisions were very strong. And that indicates that, in fact, they are going to be considering this, whether you can call a president to account. So I think that uh, it's something that's been a little bit lost in the impeachment trial, but I think it's going to be a very significant decision as we move forward. You're right. Your book does an excellent job of um, sort of explaining along the chronology of Trump's life uh, the policy changes in court cases that have made wealthy Americans much wealthier today and also wealthy Americans much more powerful today. And I know you make some comparisons in the book between now and the Gilded Age when there was a, you know, a previous generation's worth of um, right. magnates who had incredible power over the economy and, and politics. Do you think that we are in a new sort of Gilded Age? And, and do you think that if that's true, will we have more sort of you know, um, business titans who become president or become senators, et cetera? Well, what happened in the Gilded Age was that wealth grew very rapidly, and there was no national system of taxation then, and, and there was a very anti-democratic system of laws. So wealthy monopolists, and there's this famous cartoon of sort of these rotund political figures, oil, cotton cartel, walking <laughs> into the Senate gallery. Right, exactly, yeah. the fat cats. Well, the people's interest is barred. And that was symbolic of the Gilded Age, that these people with this great wealth could walk right into the halls of government and get what they wanted. And there was a pushback. President Teddy Roosevelt came in. Uh, there were President Franklin Roosevelt was uh, a big advocate of taxation. There were rules to make Senate elections and other elections more democratic. Of course, women got the right to vote. So there were all kinds of things that happened to spread democracy and reduce wealth inequality. And what has happened in the last 50 years of our history is the opposite. So since Reagan uh, became elected in 1991 and began cutting taxes, our taxes have become much, much lower. And at the same time, it's become easier and easier and easier for money to get into its ele into elections. And one of the things that I did in the course of reporting my book was go back and watch President Obama's State of the Union Street, uh, State of the Union speech after he after the Citizens United case. This was the case in which uh, it was essentially decided that there could be basically an unlimited flow of corporate money into elections. And President Obama said, this is going to open the floodgates to foreign influence in elections. And that really caught me short mm -hmm. because I hadn't realized that that was a discussion then. But when you make it so easy for dark money to come into campaigns, I mean, I used to, campaign contributions used to be so low and there weren't all these sort of fancy evasive mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But each of these successive court decisions has made it harder and harder for people like you and me to track what's going on. You can spend a whole year trying to figure out who one limited liability company is that gave to some political action group to try to figure out who is giving to elections. And, you know, Bob Mueller, for example, found that Ukrainians had illegally tried to illegally purchase tickets to Trump's inaugural. So there's an indictment in New York of two associates of Rudy Giuliani for funneling foreign money into elections. So this is happening. And it's happening as a result of court decisions that have made it easier and easier. And it is also happening when Donald Trump is in the White House, who has spent his entire career trying to get around campaign finance laws with the understanding from his perspective that his money buys him power. And he has said as much. In the 2015 campaign, he said, I give to them. And when I call them two years later, three years later, they are there for me. You know, um, obviously, President Trump ran a campaign based on being a businessman. Uh, and you, as much as anyone, have detailed all of the sort of um, you know, falsities he's made about his own wealth, about his uh, success. He's glossed over crimes that he has committed and settlements he's had to make over his career. But he said he would bring about a tremendous economic growth in America. 
and the economy has been really strong the entire time he has been president in terms of unemployment, the stock market, and other metrics. How much credit do you think the president should get for the state of the economy right now? Well, I mean, I think that uh, when the economy is, well, is going well, it always redounds positively to the president. But I don't think that, I think that the important indicator uh, in terms of broad historical terms, or what economists say, is, is to look at wealth inequality. So you can have some people doing very, very well, but if you have a situation where you have vast inequality, then you have such strain on the economic system that it's not sustainable. So I think it's a, a hard question to answer. I mean, you know, you've looked at President Trump's business practices. I have, a lot of journalists have. Bringing those practices into the White House I don't think means what people thought it meant when they elected him. I think people thought, oh, if you bring a businessman into the White House, that means you're going to get efficient management. Uh, instead, what we've seen are conflicts of interests, lies, misrepresentations, uh, financial shenanigans. You see a situation where, as you know, so many people feel that they have to go stay in his hotel. The attorney general booked a ballroom there for a party. Foreign leaders show up there because they understand that Trump is a transactional president and he will look favorably on them if they pay money to them. So that is the business that the president has brought to the White House, not a sense of sort of efficient management, uh, getting rid of waste, fraud, and abuse, which has been the sort of more, like that was kind of the Mitt Romney argument. I will bring mm. efficiency to the White House. Uh, what Trump has brought is something else entirely. Right. You know, I, I think in both of the systems that America has created to help um, entrepreneurs and businesses create wealth that you outlined very well, and also the you know, the various rule-breaking that Trump has obviously, um, you know, the rules he's broken during his career. You know, he and, and Jared Kushner and Donald Trump were both born into wealthy families, obviously. They have certain talents and, and have broken rules in certain cases also. How much of their power, success, and wealth do you think we should attribute to their own, you know, talents and, um, you know, their own efforts? And how much should we attribute to the fact that, you know, it's very easy to be become wealthier in this country if you start wealthy. Well, one of the things I really wanted to talk about in my book was this very issue of the intergenerational transfer of wealth mm -hmm. and how both the Trump family, the successive generations of the Trump family and the Kushner family have benefited from legal and in the case of the Trump family quasi legal schemes to avoid paying taxes and what that happens what that means is that the next generation just becomes richer and richer and richer and there's a snowballing effect there's an economic study that was done of what happened to the very rich uh, and it begins in 1981 which was the year that Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump were born and uh, the study was done in 2014 and it sort of looks like um, the right hand half of a letter U so the the line on the chart just shoots upward and that's how what's happening with the rich and the very wealthy and, and people like the Trump and the Kushner families is they're just getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier very very fast and it's impossible to answer the question that you asked because the amount of money transferred one generation to the next with increasingly uh, unfettered ability to flow makes it it, it, it so floods out the data points that you, you couldn't even answer that. I mean, you know, sort of the, the end of the story or the sort of almost end of that story is that the, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act of 2017, which cut taxes even more. And uh, we know the, the New York Times just did a recent analysis where they said that uh, not only was the, uh, were hundreds of billions of dollars lost from that tax bill in government revenue, but the deficit this year, 2020, uh, is going to cross a trillion dollars. So we see a situation in which the wealthier, the wealthy are able to hold on to more of their wealth, and the government is getting much, much, much less in revenues as a result of these broad historical trends of uh, less and less taxation, more influence of money in politics, and then capped off by the Tax Cuts and Job Act of 2017. Right. You know, one of the sort of most, um, one of my favorite scenes in the book, and one of the sort of most intimate scenes, I think, is uh, when you are in court and Michael Cohen is, you know, Michael Cohen, of course, was mm -hmm. President Trump's personal lawyer, 
he was sort of his fixer during his career with President Trump, where he would go solve problems, threaten people if he needed to, pay people off. He's the person who paid off uh, Stormy Daniels and, um, to make sure that that story did not become become public. And and he ended up going. He is in prison right now. And you are in court with a family member, near a family member. I can't remember if it was his his wife or his sister. His daughter. His yeah. daughter. Sorry, right. And um, yeah. you know she's <laughs> crying there in front of you. And it, the way you wrote it made me think that you had sympathy for, for Michael Cohen, even though he obviously has committed federal crimes and, uh, and, and com yeah. campaign I mean, fraud. How do, you feel, I mean, how do you feel about Michael Cohen? So I think that, you know, I, we were speaking a little bit earlier about with regards to the Kushner family. I yeah. think it's very easy, especially in these partisan times, to just try to see people as paper cutout dolls. Sure. And I wanted to present real human characters that have failings and good points and bad points and flaws. Me and my colleagues at the Trump Inc. podcast did some very hard-hitting reporting on Michael Cohen before he was indicted or even raided. As a matter of fact, we were out in the field the day that Michael Cohen's uh, office and home were raided by the FBI. And I covered the trajectory of his court cases. And what became interesting to me over the course of those, of those court cases, and also all the testimony that he gave, the public testimony that he gave, the closed-door testimony that he gave, is he talked about a situation which was very familiar to me as someone who's spoken to a lot of people who work for the Trump Organization, where he went to work for Donald Trump and it felt so thrilling and so exciting and like anything could happen. And then Donald Trump asked him to cross a line. And he was like, okay. And then once you cross a line, Donald Trump would ask him to cross another line, sort of even more farther off the edge. And then Michael Cohen would do that, too. And then he would do it so many times that he couldn't go back. And that is a situation that a number of people that I have reported on and spoke to, to over the years faced, that they were enthralled with Donald Trump, but then they crossed lines for him, and then they were stuck not being ever able to say no. And what happened with Michael Cohen is that finally, obviously, he did plead guilty. He did give some information to prosecutors about his former boss. And Donald Trump turned on him, stopped paying for his lawyers, called Michael Cohen a rat. And Michael Cohen went into the courtroom and said, I did this crime, but I did this crime to help the political campaign of someone else. And what he said, and I'm paraphrasing now, was why isn't that person also being called to account? And he gets up in court on this day in December and he starts to say to the judge, I'm sorry. And his daughter, who is sitting just feet from me in the courthouse, starts to sob. And I look over at her. She's not that much older than my own daughter. And I hand her a packet of tissues. And she sort of looks at it, and she wipes her eyes. And Michael Cohen can hear her crying, and he starts to sob practically. It's a very sad scene. I and mean, whatever your politics are, it's a very, yeah. very sad scene. It's, you know, and he says, I do not want to be the villain in his history. And I think it's something that we see over and over and over again with people that have been very close to Donald Trump that would do anything for Donald Trump. Michael Cohen said he would take a bullet for Donald Trump. But that when they veer from that path, or even before they veer from that path, Donald Trump, for one reason or another, rejects them and lets them face the consequences. And it's something we've seen over and over again in Donald Trump's career. Yeah. Uh, I think we have five or so minutes to go. There's a couple more questions I really wanted to get to. Um, one of them is you and I both spend a lot of time reporting on uh, conflicts of interest and concerns about conflicts of interest between uh, President Trump's company and his administration, the government, uh, which he and his family said they would keep very separate when he was elected, but now he travels to his properties all the time. There's various um, problems with his hotel, et cetera. There are three court cases about all this. Uh, but, you know, the president donates his presidential salary, and it still remains unclear to me at some times whether the president is actually making more money because he is president or making less money while he's president. What do you think about that? So I, I agree with you. I think it's a sort of a mystery, and it's an uncomfortable mystery. I would like to know if the president is personally, is per personally profiting from the presidency. 
But what I think is clear to all of us is that the president has brought in a certain way of being where he feels like it is perfectly fine for him to use government resources for his business and where seemingly it's perfectly fine for his associates to use government resources for their businesses. And in some ways, as we sort of unravel the roots of this Ukraine scandal, that's where that starts too, with people's business interests, people's desire to make money intersecting with a sort of off-the-books government in all kinds of murky ways. And it is clear that Trump has wholesale brought that in approach to the White House and it has permeated the government. So I think it's a question about him shaping our entire style of government in a way that helps him expand his power. And that is certainly happening, even if his personal bottom line may not be affected. It's his power that he's been able to enhance using these techniques in the White House. And I think that's the ball we need to be able to keep our eye on. Sure. Um, you know, as a New Yorker, I have a question for you. Uh, if, if for when the Trumps are not in, where Donald Trump is not the president anymore again, whenever that is, uh, do you think that if the Trump family and the Kushner family all return to New York, that they will be welcomed back in some welcomed back in some way? I mean, obviously their friends are very wealthy, well-to-do, you know, uh, people like themselves. Could they come back to New mm -hmm. York and go back to the private sector and be? you know, go back to their life beforehand, or will they have to live in red state America? Will they have to live in Florida or, you know, somewhere else like that? Well, <laughs> they did change their residency to Florida, so there's that. I, I think it, you know, it's, uh, this is what is clear. It's clear that Donald Trump gets a lot of criticism in New York and in New York society for his policies and for his sort of chaotic style of presidency. Uh, and uh, that is very loud. He's also uh, in the state broadly, in, among the entire population of the state, uh, is not that popular president, even though obviously he's popular in parts of the country. I covered political campaigns. I covered six national political campaigns. And when you cover a political campaign, all that anybody basically wants you to say in your coverage is, who's going to win? What's going to happen? And every story is sort of a way to kind of answer that question, but hedging your bets. And after the election of 2016, I got out of the prediction business because I realized we didn't understand the forces at play. Mm -hmm. So many things were happening in elections that we didn't know. And I feel that it is very hard to predict political futures, so I am going to take a pass on answering that question. <laughs> That's all right. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested um, in, you know, you wrote or you, you said earlier in, uh, today that you felt like you had an obligation to write this book. Um, and mm. obviously we are living in an incredibly polarized time in America uh, politically, and we have a president who um, is relentlessly telling people not to believe what the press writes about him and, and says about him on the radio, et cetera. Um, do you ever, you know, you wrote about, you touched on this a little bit at the end of your book, but um, you know, I'm interested in, in you saying more about why you decided it was worth it to write this, because it seems like so many of Americans have decided right. what they think about Donald Trump already, and whether they like him or do not like him. It sometimes feels like new information is not, mm -hmm. in, you know, doesn't it really affect anything sometimes. It just goes into the ether, and then if he doesn't like it, he tries to destroy it, and then uh, if he does like it, then he promotes it. Uh, do you think that there's a chance that your book and reporting about the president um, could have some difference in the election or going forward? Well, it, my book, I mean, I hope that my book is read not just now, but next year and 10 years from now, because I don't mean to just tell a story, a multi-generational story about these two families, which I do, but also to tell a story about America and how we got to this point, and really try to lay that out in all its ups and downs and complexities. People need to understand this country. They need to understand how it works. They need to understand where we came from. There's a lot of fine material out there that looks at what is happening, for example, specifically in the White House right now. And that is not what this book is. This book is to explain and trace the trajectory of American democracy. 
And I hope that is something that people can read and think about and discuss and debate for years, no matter what their political parties are. It is not meant to be an aggregation of facts that people can sort of put into their political machines. It's meant to tell a story about us and our times. And I have enough faith in our country, otherwise I would just sort of lie down and not do anything, that I believe that there are people that want that, and they want to understand what is going on, and that the documenting itself and the saying, we're going to tell you what's happening, we're going to say the truth, despite the fact that people are claiming there is no truth, we still believe in that, we still believe in journalism, we still believe in evidence, and we're going to continue this practice. And in upholding that standard, I believe, we are really doing something very, very important in this democracy. The press is the only profession listed in the Constitution, so I feel a particular obligation to do the right thing by our country. Well, again, I, uh, I avoid a lot of political books. I think a lot of books about President Trump in particular have been sort of overwrought and glided past a lot of the actual facts, and your book is full of them. So thank you so much um, for writing it and for the conversation. Thank you. It's really, really great to have a chance to talk to you in this way and yeah. keep up the great work yourself. Same to you.